Lord God, we come before you asking you to shake off all that which would hinder us from seeing you and from hearing you this morning, Lord. We ask for your mercy and your grace to be poured upon us. We can do nothing without you. We need you to work here. We need you to speak here, to whisper upon the words that come from this weak vessel's mouth, Lord. Would you move? Would you work? Would you stir us up? Would you drive us on in this pilgrimage, Lord? Would you help us? Would you give us something here today to to be a help to needy souls, to be an edification and a building up for those who are struggling and who are suffering, who are wrestling, Lord? Would you give us grace here from your word? Would you give us truth? Would you give us that which we don't even know how to ask, Lord, from your gracious abundance, Lord? Would you pour out upon us during this time? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's so important that we continue that prayer as we open up the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 3 to continue to seek Him and ask Him to give us something. If you stop at this point, if you stop asking God to give you something at this point and then just turn your attention to me and rely on me to somehow provide something, you will have wasted your time this morning. Because there's no chance that if you're just depending on this man's words that it's going to profit you any. But this morning, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to look to God's word. We're going to look to his truth. And we're going to continue to, in our minds, seek him and ask him to help us here. Chapter 3 and 4 of Hebrews. We don't have enough time to go through both of these chapters with much depth. But what I want to do is pick up on the imperatives or the directions that are found in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and use them as a reminder on how the Christian is to live. Chapter 3 and 4 are full of practical truths that the Christian can just take and pocket, if you will, just put right in the nuke of their heart and say, Lord, give this life at that specific time when I need it. We have specific words like consider, take heed, exhort, fear, labor, and hold fast. These are words that we can take and just, with with the use of one word, it can just trigger an entire reality of spiritual depth. And each of them really is worthy of a 45-minute, 30-minute discourse to just talk of what it is to consider, to take heed, to exhort, to fear, to labor, and to hold fast. What I want to do is just get an overview. In two chapters that seem very paradoxical in a lot of ways, fear, but don't fear, rest, but don't rest, Hold fast, but press on. I mean, these, these seeming paradoxes just cause us to, to step back and say, I don't understand. I don't even get it. I don't know what this is really trying to tell me. And on top of that, these paradoxes are interwoven in Old Testament examples. So you have to have some type of understanding of the Old Testament. You have to be able to look back to those 
pictures, uh, those examples found there, and understand what was happening in that context, and then bring it into chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. So chapters 3 and 4 can be broken down into two sections, Christ being better than Moses, and Christ being better than Joshua. All of that saying that Christ was better at delivering the promised rest than that of Moses and of Joshua. Not that Moses and Joshua were unfaithful, or that they didn't do well as good stewards over that which God had given them, or that they didn't fulfill that which was God's will. How could man thwart God's will? Of course they fulfilled everything that God intended for them to do. But that Christ does that which is better in actually delivering the rest that the promised land of Canaan foreshadowed and typified. So consider here in Hebrews chapter 3, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So what I said earlier is that chapters 3 and 4 are full of practical truths that tell us, as much as the Bible is, how to live our Christian life. And we start that with consider. As partakers of the heavenly calling, as I believe many of us here profess to be, I don't know some of you, I haven't heard your profession from your own lips, but you're among people, among a family of God's people in which we expect that any who are among our body who are claiming to be a Christian would have a profession, that we follow Christ, that we seek to live as he lives, that we seek to take up our cross and daily die to ourselves, that we seek to honor his word in all things. But before we even get to profession, there's first the reality of a heavenly calling. Not an earthly calling, not a calling from a pulpit, not a calling from a man, not a calling from this world, but one that comes from heaven, one that comes through the Spirit, sent to each man's heart, calling him irresistibly to follow after Christ. A heavenly calling. Consider then the one who has called you. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The apostle that is the messenger and the one who was sent. Will you take a minute to just think this morning on how God sent his son for sinners? That was love that compelled him to do that. It wasn't duty or obligation. God had no obligation to save unworthy sinners. It was love that compelled him to send and to send a message of peace. What mercy. Look at this high priest. Christ could have came and just given the message, but he was also willing in and of himself to fulfill the needs of guilty sinners as a high priest. This is what we profess, that Christ is God in the flesh and was sent to save unworthy sinners. And now, stands, sits, both are true, at the right hand of the Lord, and makes intercession for those saints. This is what we profess. This Christ, this Savior, this Jesus that I'm talking about this morning, was faithful to him that appointed him. 
as also, as I mentioned, Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who had built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily or truly was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Meaning as a picture, as a, as a statement about what was to come. This is what Moses did. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. If we consider our profession. How do we live this Christian walk? If you are one who believes God is awakening you to the reality of your sin, but more so than just the reality of your sin, awakening you to the glory of God, of the beauty of His majesty, of the infinite wonder of His triune person. Is God awakening you to that reality yet? This is the heavenly calling. This is that which we're to consider. This is that which we can rejoice in. Christ, as a son over his own house, in verse 6, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. Maybe maybe I should have warned us before we started digging into this, but these two chapters are full of sobering realities, of truths that cause even the most assured, and, and those Christians you would look at and you would say, ah, godly people, to tremble and to wonder, am I hardening my heart? Am I taking heed as I ought to? Am I living the Christian walk? Or rather, did I deceive myself? And did I really hear from the Lord? Has He really called me? Have I really been moved by Him? And while, yes, these two chapters have truths that cause us to shake like that and cause us to tremble in that way, it also has much hope and encouragement to remind us. You see, that's that's what true encouragement does. True encouragement doesn't minimize the sobering realities of what the gospel really has, of the dangers that we are very much walking down a very narrow path and on both sides are cliffs in which we could supposedly or seemingly stumble into at any moment. That there are many even in the church who profess and claim to have heard from God, to know of God, to seen God, to experience God in the Word, who have doctrinal truth, who have religious motivations, and yet have never truly been called. And because of that reality, we have chapters like 3 and 4 to shake us all so that those who stand, stand not in their own strength, in their own ability. They don't press on in the Christian walk by their own power or their own will, but they turn and trust in Christ. They consider Christ. And so everything that we read about in, the, in these chapters is going to drive us back to verse 1 and it's going to culminate at the end of chapter 4. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, that is tempted God, proved me and saw my works 40 years, 
Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Read that verse. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Those words should cause us to tremble. This is a God who is certainly able to save, but he, you see, the foundation of the promises of God are in his character, that he is faithful to what he says he will do. And he gives great and glorious promises of grace and mercy. But we're not going to get lopsided. We're not going to err and only looking at God as this God of grace. We're going to look at God as who he actually is, one who keeps his word who is faithful, and he has also given great promises of wrath and of judgment upon those who would not bend their knee and humble their hearts before him. And so in verse 12, we get our next word, take heed, brethren. You see, and, and I love that the word brethren follows right after that, because after you read that, you, you, you're just, there's so much of a reality that we have been hard-hearted, haven't we? There's so much of a reality when we look at ourselves, we examine ourselves by this scripture, that we don't always hear his voice. Yes, we've been called, but we don't always listen to his voice. Is God grieved with us? Certainly, my sin must grieve him every day. Before I even get out of bed, I'm certain thoughts have passed my mind and actions have not been done that grieve my God. What side of his faithfulness Will I receive? Will I receive his faithfulness to be just? Or will I receive his faithfulness to be merciful? And then I read the word, brethren. So this isn't to terrify us as though we are not brethren. He reminds us all. We have heard the calling of God. Brethren, take heed. Pay attention. Wake up. This should, this should shake us. This should stir us. Have you ever been driving along on a highway and you're just, you're going along just fine and someone cuts you off real fast or maybe a wind just pushes you and you hit that rumble strip and you, you're, you're shaking. You're awoken, aren't you? You're, you're stirred and all of a sudden you're, you're at 10 and 2 again and your, your eyes are on the road and you're paying attention and take heed. These verses are intended by the Spirit of God ordained to do just that to true Christians. You see, because if you have not experienced the reality of who God is, this will not affect you because you don't consider God faithful. You don't consider God true. You don't consider Him sovereign. You don't consider Him powerful enough to fulfill the promises of swearing in His wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. But we consider God faithful. So take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, of swerving off the road. But exhort one another daily. Exhort. Encourage one another to the exercising of the grace that we've been giving, of practicing it. I know many who who say they have grace, and in their life there is a, a picture of that grace, a semblance of it, and I would not discourage him and say, oh, I don't know if you're even saved. I don't know if you've really got much grace. I mean, you, you have this fault and this failure and this 
character flaw and this personality type. I don't know if you really have the grace of God. No, what we're going to say instead is we're going to, we're going to exhort them to, to the exercising of that grace. We're going to encourage them using words of edification. We're going to build them up and provoke them even to good works. Invite them to come along. Remind them of scriptural truths. We're going to use the word of God to probe and to press. This is what we're called to do, to exhort one another daily. Daily. To the enjoyment of the grace of God. Oh, we're under so much trial, so much weight, so much upon us that grieves our souls in this world as we see the wickedness, as we see the struggle. And certainly we have doctrinal realities that God is in control of all of this. God is is engaged in every molecule. And if he wasn't, I couldn't sleep tonight. He has it all under perfect control and submission to his will and to his power. But we look out at the, the grief, we look at the suffering, we look at the pain, and it wears us down. And so when we exhort one another, we're to encourage one another to the enjoyment of the grace of God. What a remedy to the hardships. What a balm of healing to those under much suffering, to just remind them of what grace God has done in the past, what grace He has given us here today to have the freedoms to be able to sit and worship Him as we look at Him in this Word, and what grace is to come as we look forward. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. For this reason, lest any of you be hardened through the deceit of sin. When I hear of one brother saying to another, I know a friend in the church, and they're just, they're dry. They're not, they're not in the word as much as I thought they had been in the past. They're not, their prayer life isn't really there anymore. What should I do? Exhort them. Get in there and remind them, encourage them of, of the beauties in this word. Get in this Bible. Don't be distracted by the fancies of this world. Don't let the, the difficulties of some passages stop you from just going and reading Romans 8. Just, you know what that means. You can look at Romans 8 and not get confused. You can look at how all things work together for good for those who love God, for the called. You can go to Philippians 2. You can go to Psalms and, and just read them and be encouraged. Get back in the word. That's an exhortation. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Meaning, have you truly been called? Then you'll hear this exhortation. Get back in God's word again. Increase how often you're there. Get back to prayer life in your closet before your bed as you kneel and increase it all the more. Get back to your activities and your actions that stem from a motive of love towards Christ Jesus. Whatever bubbles up within you as you meditate and consider our apostle and high priest and all that he does for us, whatever comes forth from that consideration as to how you're to live and what you're to do, press into it and get to it. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, 
But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Guard against unbelief. That's what exhortation does. That's what taking heed does. And that's what considering does. It guards against unbelief. And then look at the beginning of chapter 4. Let us therefore fear. Let us therefore fear. Wait, wait, I thought you said not to fear. I thought the scripture says fear not. I thought it says that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I thought we weren't supposed to be afraid because he is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. I thought we weren't supposed to fear. No, there is a healthy fear. Fear keeps us from that which would ultimately destroy us. So don't fear that which cannot destroy, i.e. man, but rather fear him who can destroy both the body and cast the soul into hell. That's healthy fear. Let us therefore fear. Fear what exactly? Fear God and fear not believing God. Be afraid of reading his word and saying something in your heart and your mind. You know as you read his truth, oh, that's not exactly for me. Oh, that's not a command for me. Oh, that's for other Christians. Fear unbelieving his word. Fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. To come short of it. Literally, to be a day late. To be a day late. Now, here's the Old Testament example. Remember in Numbers 14. Do you remember how here came the witnesses and they said, well, 10 of them said, oh, it's filled with pestilence and giants and strongholds we could never overcome. And they begin to fear in an unbiblical way. They begin to fear unbelievingly instead of fearing unbelief. Make sense. You see, their fear was not of God. Even though they had seen his power and his plagues, his ability, his strength, they did not believe. And they came short of it. But here's where it was a day late. Because do you recall then Moses spoke to God and God came back and he said these things, right? That he swore that they should not enter into his rest. And the next day, what did they do? Then, let's, let's get together. Let's go. Let's do this. What presumption. A day late. Had they done that the day before, they would have been in perfect obedience. They would have been believing. If they were a day late, they had come short of it. Let's be afraid of not believing God. This lack of faith, this place of self-reliance will only cause us to hesitate just long enough until God is no longer with us. You see, we need to have this fear unless we get comfortable as good Christian churchgoers and we stop fearing not a slavish fear. Hebrews 2.15 says that Christ and His blood will deliver them who through fear of death will all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
Not a fear that binds us and causes us to be unfruitful or ineffective. Not that kind of fear. But a fear that propels us towards salvation. That is, towards receiving the end of that which was promised to us. As we consider Christ and His calling and His position and our position in Him reserved for us undefiled in heaven. As we consider that and as we take heed and we exhort one another and we look at the unbelief all around us, we are fearful and we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You see, we recognize that fear is necessary to walk in this Christian life. In Romans 11, I'm going to read this. This will sound very familiar. 11 verse 20 says, Well, because of unbelief, they, the Israelites as a nation, were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded. Don't be proud. Don't be comfortable. Don't be sure of yourself in your Christian position in the church or your your years of service to God. Don't be high-minded. Let none of that, no position, no gifts, no strengths, let them all be counted as nothing, as loss, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed. There it is again lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness, the goodness of God to give us grace and to call us and to bring us into this walk. The goodness of his sovereign grace to pull us out of darkness and to redeem us all while we were yet enemies of him. The goodness. And the severity of God. His faithfulness, to be true, to be righteous, to be pure, to be holy, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. You see, we get to this, and we have this question, if we're thinking about this, we get to this question, and I'll close with this. We get to this question of, wait a second, God promised he was going to redeem a people. So let's go to the Old Testament example. God promised he was going to bring them out of Israel and bring them to the promised land. Let me ask you something. When those carcasses dropped in the wilderness, was God unfaithful? Did he fail at his promises? Some would suggest that. And I say, absolutely not. I could never utter it. God was supremely faithful to every last bit of what he had said to his people. And up until that point, he hadn't said much to them, right? This was very early on. And he was faithful to every bit of it. He was faithful to every part. Because the people that he chose did enter into rest. In the type. They did enter into the promised land. They did overcome strongholds and cast down enemies. And those who continued in it by faith, not by works, not by their own strength, not because they were considering, not because they were taking heed, not because they, by their own might, were exhorting one another with their own knowledge and, and their skills. No, out of love and faith, they feared, they labored, and they held fast to the promises of God. They considered God. And so it is with us. There are those who will go out from us. And they were never really among us. They were never really a part of us. But I would not, because I love many of you so dearly, that it would be any of you. Or that it would even seem like it's any of you or, or my, myself here. But that we would press on. That we would take heed. 
God is faithful. And because He's faithful, listen, seeing then that we have a great high priest. This is the end of chapter 4, tying back to chapter 3, verse 1. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, considering Him that is passed into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And as we hold fast our profession, it drives us all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1, where we consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. And it, it gives us this cycle, this cycle where we consider Christ, we take heed, we exhort, we fear, we labor, and we hold fast to that profession. And we consider Christ. And through every trial, we consider Christ. In every difficulty, we consider Christ. In every success, we consider Christ. We look to Christ. We depend upon Christ. We look at His cross. We look at His blood. We look at His sacrifice. We look at His example, His perfect life, His obedient death. We look at Him. We consider Him. This will keep us from sin. And if we do this, if we consider Him and we add to our faith virtue and virtue knowledge and patience and love, brotherly love and affection, if we add and we build and we press on in grace, we will not fall. And we will look back and we will not say, oh, because I did so well taking heed and because I did so well exhorting. No, we will not fall. We will not be kept from rest because of His promises, because He is faithful. Consider that and let that propel you into taking heed and to exhorting, to fearing, to laboring into holding fast to that profession. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time of Bible study. Thank you for this time where we can open up your word and we only get to scan the shallow portions of your truth. And Lord, some of these truths are hard to reconcile in our finite minds. But we stop trying to understand it for ourselves as if when we grasp it in truth, we would somehow have attained something by our own ability. Lord, we cast down our ability to understand instead by faith. We hold to your promises, your promises of grace. And we would follow after you as faithful servants, obediently, Lord. Would you let this truth be helpful to your people? to your sheep, that they would not be led astray. Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.